other states are shutting down their economies. We've never been more open for business. Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. The legislative session is underway and uh, man, it's already a wild time. Uh, although the the actual activities of the legislature haven't really caught fire yet, uh, but other news in the Oklahoma pol- politics and government world has been very big news this week. Uh, we got the audit of the health department that we talked about last week, and we'll talk about how that came to be and and what is contained in that. The Oklahoma County Jail uh, Administrator is uh, guilty of of it's not a hot mic, but just leaving a long voicemail with way too much uh, personal opinion information. Uh, medical marijuana is continues to be in the news. Uh, Oklahoma nonprofits are um, misspending federal funds. It's uh, a bunch of, of madness. And on top of that, we have the usual early session, terrible bill stuff going on. But already... We are beginning to see some fissures in the leadership, we think. So let's uh, we'll break all this down. All right, joining me today is my uh, friend and co-host, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. Hey, man. How are you? Good. <laughs> that was a big, a big inhale you just had there. Well, I mean, you know, I just got a headache. Ah, just, just right then, as I was giving the uh, table yeah. of contents. We're we're four days in, and I have a headache. So we're, we're five days in. I also have the hiccups. Oh, a headache and the hiccups. Scott is about to explode is what that tells me. Well, um, I think we're going to start this week by talking about uh, some local stuff. Uh, we'll talk about some nonprofits. Then we'll go to the loft report about medical marijuana. And then we'll end the episode by discussing the governor's state of the state address, which he delivered last Monday. Uh, Scott, let's start talking about the uh, Oklahoma Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault, a a, a coalition I think that needs to exist and um, has had broad support. But this week, there was a report that the executive director there had been misusing federal funds. Uh, And the stories in Oklahoma Watch, with all this stuff, we'll put the links into the show notes. Uh, I spent probably two hours this morning, actually, um, fiddling with uh, a system so that it makes it easier for us to uh, keep those links uh, in a spreadsheet so that we can just add to them as session goes along. But anyway, back to this. So the Okay, C-A-D-V-S, whatever, Oklahoma Coalition Against Domestic Violence Sexual Assault um, is a federally funded, largely federally funded, Oklahoma-based nonprofit, and it sounds like they've had some budget woes. Scott, have you read this story? Yeah. So, Andy, you've, you've done a lot of work with various nonprofits. You're executive director of multiple nonprofits, and you previously worked at a uh, medical clinic that received a large amount of federal grant funding, right? This this is all correct. Yes. Yeah. So uh, when is the last time that you went on a work trip using federal grant money and went on a wine tour? 
I've never done that. That sounds nice. And, <laughs> that's, a, and, that's, that's good that we've got that recorded. You say that, you, <laughs> yeah. that, you, that you've never done that. No, there there was a federal audit um, looking at the Oklahoma Coalition Against Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. Um, and then between 2015 and 2020, uh, they mismanaged, this is a quote, they mismanaged $886,495. $886,495 just to just to skosh under a million bucks, which is 98% of the grant money that was spent by the coalition during those five years. So 98% of their funds, 98% of the grant money that was spent was misspent, uh, mismanaged. Um, and and in that five-year period of, of that money, $239,499 was spent on travel. Now, I'm That's I am nuts. Like that's a lot of money. I mean it's over five years. That's still a lot of money per year for travel. I I travel a lot. <laughs> I travel a lot and I've gone some cool places. Um and yes, that is a lot of money <laughs> to spend on to spend on travel. I'm like, where where were you going and what were you doing while you were there? Because you're taking better vacations than I do. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean that's it's almost fifty thousand dollars a year on travel. Um, and I, so a few things stood out to me about this story. Uh, well, one, first of all, we should say the executive director is no longer there, right? Yes. Um, she's, she's not there when she was there. Do you know what her salary was? Only 60,000, 60,000 a year, but she was getting an extra 50,000 a year, apparently in travel benefits. Right. She was getting almost, almost doubling her salary just in travel on an annual basis this several this whole thing there were several things that just struck me as weird about this one for executive director of a nonprofit like this i feel like that was a very low salary um and for market rates right and i'm not saying it, it at all justifies this but i also have seen in my career people who were legitimately underpaid or or felt that they were underpaid or were then somehow felt uh, they they used that as justification for fleecing the system in other ways, right? Because they're like, I don't make much money, so it's okay if I do this other thing. You're like, that's not the case. But it also, were, go ahead. Well, there were some people. There were some people on the board that had questions about the spending and had questions about the travel. But one of one of the things that that's interesting is. You know, when they hired her, apparently, apparently they they hired her for some related experience that she had, but she hadn't done any work in the abuse field. And so they thought it made sense for her to go to a lot of these like conferences and meetings and workshops to learn how to work with the vict with victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, to learn about the uh, to learn about the field, to learn about how to how to run this kind of an organization effectively. And I can see that making sense, except that, Apparently, on one of these trips, she skipped a couple days of seminars so she could go to Temecula and taste wine. Right, <laughs> right. right. Like. So, I this is the it was not okay. None of this is okay. Some parts of it, when you read it, like certainly there's probably more to it because it talked about her going to conferences and like staying in her room. Right now, I will admit I've been to a conference where like I skipped a day of meetings because I had to I had to spend that day finishing a grant. Right, that was related to the it was due or whatever um and i think it is it is not uncommon for people to skip sessions here and there because they need another meeting or because 
their brain is full and they just need a break, right? That makes right. some sense. However, this was not an occasional skip in a session, right? This is this was like I left the conference that I'm right. at to go wine tasting. <laughs> right. Right. And fifty thousand dollars a year for this kind of stuff is a lot. I mean, think about how much it costs to fly somewhere for a conference and to stay in a hotel for five days, right? You're looking at, I mean, maybe with airfare and hotel, $2,000. And that's a nice hotel and a nice flight, right? Like, I I honestly can't imagine how you could even do, like, how it would add up to this much. Even if I, I mean, that's it, like could spend that much. That seems like it's about 10, like 10 weeks of conferences a year, right? Like $5,000 for a week-long conference 10 times a year, which is like a lot of, that's like a lot of conferencing. Well, and that's a lot of, still, $5,000 for a week, right? That's a thousand bucks a day. There's no way. Also, if it's federally funded, like there's limits on this stuff. Sure. I mean, you got to think about like, I don't know if this includes like the fees. I mean, some of these conferences that I go to, you know, to go to the, like the registration fee of the conference is a thousand bucks, you know, like That's true. Well, and I would say things for the medical field are way higher than some of other stuff, right? Like it is as someone who hosts a national conference every year, our ticket prices are like two fifty, right? Maybe three fifty non-members. Uh, and so, and that's for a nice thing at like half moon Bay or somewhere, right? Like uh, this is, just way far and above anyway it's the whole story is exactly the kind of thing uh, that you hate to see right especially for an organization that well we think does good work but it it's a huge black eye for that organization um i don't know if she's gonna be facing i was gonna say she seems like she could go to jail for this right like yeah yeah i mean again um you know, when I was working at a federally funded program, it was through the university. And so there's all kinds of checks and balances and just bureaucracy hassles that you have to go through to do anything related to travel. If you're a small nonprofit and it, you're the one in charge of the budget, I guess it's a little easier to uh, to game the system. But I, I really hope that they get a handle on this. And this is a good reason for all of our listeners, both of them who are <laughs> working the uh, nonprofit field for why you should have uh, a good governance manual and a good policy manual for your organization, right? Because too often organizations don't have policies in place until it's too late, until they need them, right? And this is why you should spend the money on a good attorney up front to make sure that you have this stuff in place. And if you have it in place, make sure that it's being adhered to. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> well, and I think this is kind of skipping out of order, but if we are... Um, talking about having policies in place is now a good place to talk about the uh, Department of Health audit. Speaking of agencies who didn't have policies in place. Yeah, I mean, so I think that this is maybe the biggest news of the week. Um, now, I just want to throw out there, I don't know that State Auditor and Inspector Cindy Bird listens to the pod, but I also don't know that she doesn't. Because last week we asked this question. We were like, hey, is there anything that says that like she can't just release this on her own? Like, why does the AG get to decide that this is going to be kept secret? And uh, what might happen? But on Wednesday of this week, I think it was Wednesday, uh, Cindy Bird came out and said, 
I have determined that there is no statute in Oklahoma law that gives any state official the authority to withhold this information and keep it secret. So here you are, world. Like, here it is. Uh, it's uh, It sounds they, like it was, she released it because she received an open records request asking for it. And I'm not sure if that request came from uh, Frontier reporter Cassie McClung, who had kind of broke the story last week first, right? I heard on um, This Week in Oklahoma Politics, the KOSU program with Ryan Kiesel and, uh, and Neva Hill. Ryan Kiesel, I think he said the Tulsa World reporter who requested it. Uh, and so I don't, I would assume that would be Barbara Hoverock then from the Tulsa World, who's their politics mm -hmm. reporter. Um, but it sounds like one of them, either Barbara or Cassie, submitted open records request and and uh state auditor cindy bird was like you know what i think this is a fair request and there's nothing in the law that says i can't which is to your point exactly what we said last week so <laughs> if, if you don't listen uh thank you uh auditor bird we appreciate you and your time and uh, you're welcome to come on the show anytime absolutely St standing invitation uh i will say turning to the audit itself and i'll let you speak to this because i know i i have kind of skimmed skimmed through it i think you've read the i think you've read the report in its entirety at least close to yeah. it uh it's not great bob it's not great it's, it's not great <laughs> it's really not a bad read uh it said it's 26 pages which sounds like a lot but it's not it's what's big margins and it's very easy to read actually and uh if you read the frontiers article about it um it's all in there for the most part. Uh, I mean, they really pulled the highlights out. Uh, basically, a pandemic hit and the State Department of Health was not prepared. Now that much we already knew, like they were not prepared in lots of ways, but then the governor started dropping executive orders and like loosening rules. And and I think everyone felt like that, it just means we gotta do whatever we gotta do. And fair enough, right? Like this was an unprecedented event. and undoubtedly mistakes were going to be made right like it was it, it still is an unprecedented event just throwing well, that out there because it's still ongoing because because it is ongoing but well just, yeah but now we have precedent of two years worth of stuff so like if they keep making these mistakes that's on them and i think you know honestly uh what happened right is they they had to buy a shit ton of ppe right remember in the beginning masks were in short supply everyone was scrambling we're just you know People are like wrapping, you know, tube socks around their face to try to protect themselves when, when people cared about that kind of thing, uh, and uh, and so they put out all these, you know, they were trying to beg, borrow, and steal to get PPE, and along the way, they spent a lot of money and they didn't get it all back. Some of this we already knew, right? There had been some stories come out, but it turns out there's about five point four million dollars worth of PPE that there's no evidence that the state received. And part of the problem, Scott, I think is that they had like a, a really shitty record keeping system, right? It's like cardboard boxes full of papers where, you know, it's like stuff and receipts in an envelope. Be like, Oh, well, you know, we'll balance this later. And of course they never did. Yeah. No, in, no internal controls, no internal tracking system. They also violated the constitution because they paid for, I, they paid for the items before they were received, which is not allowed in the Oklahoma constitution. Um, and I, you know, you feel like as much as the governor has lost in court, you would think he would understand this at this point, but it seems like he doesn't. The governor can't just issue an executive order that violates the constitution. That's why we have constitutions. Um, 
well, not the only reason, but <laughs> that's one reason why we have constitutions. I um, I think like that's the thing is that the governor issued his executive orders, and I think his thought probably was like like he's running a business, right? He's just like do what you got to do. I I did the order, you know, he signed whatever they put in front of him. The thing is, the order it relaxed rules, but didn't do away with them, right? Like there are still um there's still limits there and still rules and and had he written his executive order differently it might have been able to circumvent some of those and this might not have been an issue but uh but he didn't and here we are well but i think it also shows this is i mean i think that in some ways that you know i was gonna facetiously like say this but it's true like it makes you just wonder like is this how the governor runs his business? You know what I mean? Like, because yeah. it's, you know, like, is, is, is this how, like, we, uh, we hired Governor Sit based on his business uh, acumen to turn Oklahoma around. Interesting point. It's been four years and he still says we need to turn Oklahoma around, but that's, uh, you know, we'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, but is, you know, this doesn't speak, this doesn't uh, paint a picture of someone who's, you know, really successfully leading an organization. Now, maybe you could put that not directly on the governor. Uh, you could put it more on the, what's his name, Gino, uh, the guy that he hired to purchase the PPE and the people that were in charge of the Oklahoma State Department of Health at the time. But the governor hired those folks, right? So, you know, where do, where does the buck stop? I think when you look at the audit and the report, the, the 5.4 million is a lot of money but it's not like one big chunk that they lost like they did a few years ago. Right. <laughs> they, they, it's a bunch of smaller amounts, you know, 200,000 here, 700,000 there, 2 million here. And, uh, they, by and large, the state auditor was able to match up everything, right? They audited stuff, everything matched except for a few transactions that are significant the thing that rubs me the wrong way, Scott, is that some of these transactions are with companies that either didn't exist before the pandemic, right? Like, and we know this happened where it's like one of the governor's buddies started a business to like acquire PPE and got a contract for several hundred thousand dollars. What? And then maybe didn't ever deliver it, right? Or delivered it and there's no receipt because the state didn't have a receipt book that day. It's those kinds of things. Right. Uh, and so when you look at the report, I started like looking up some of these companies and some of them are for non PPE stuff. It's like services and it, and they just like, I'm one of the companies has hemp in the name and I'm, they had like a CBD company <laughs> and it's like $2 million. And I was like, what were they actually providing? Like, what is the service? I'm hoping that one of the reporters will look into some of this stuff. I need to, maybe we should reach out to some of these reporters and find out because it, it maybe it's, it's on the up and up, but it just seemed a little weird, right? Some of them you don't know because it's like companies like A&K distributors for respirators. Like, okay. But then there's uh, some other companies that, you know, this one's called Green Rock Hemp Holdings. Uh, LLC. And I'm like hemp holdings. Green I mean, Rock that sounds like a medical industry. supply company. Sounds like a what? That sounds like a medical supply company. Yeah. I mean, there's another one <laughs> that uh, Nagamori Trade LLC. And I was like, what's that? But they, and it was only for $1,500. Um, 
and it was they like specialize in hand sanitizer and i was like okay that's fine but that one the uh green rock hemp holdings llc and then something else cover craft parent iii ink it's just like okay well what's this for and you know a lot of them weren't a, a big deal one of them is just for someone named anthony todd katatanya i don't and i'm just like well what's that it's fourteen thousand dollars like what is this stuff for and i wish the audit went into those details so i it makes makes my stomach feel a little weird or just like i feel like they were giving out money to friends and maybe those people didn't come through with it that's my fear i i i i share your fear I think it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a reasonable one. Um, but head to Frontier, check out the story. They did a great job, and I suspect there will be more stories to come out of to come out of this. And uh, if you are listening, Honor Bird, thank you. Well, and related to this, um, didn't the AG impanel the multi-county grand jury again this week too? Did you see that? I did not see this. So I suspect that in the next, you know, couple of weeks or months, we may see some more uh, charges filed stemming from this multi-county grand jury. And I, I don't know if it's about this or if it's about Epic, but I think one of the two, we may, we may see some, uh, some stuff. Oh, it's not going to be Epic though. This is a story we don't have on our list to talk about, but the AG is given the Epic case to oklahoma county district attorney david prater right who apparently was prosecuting it before because epic is based in oklahoma county but it, i was just like it doesn't usually go that way usually it goes up the chain and the higher ranking guy is the one to take it to its uh natural end but the fact that the ag is not the one looking at charges or prosecuting epic seems very odd to me yeah i don't think it has anything to do with trying not to make the governor look bad does it? <laughs> it it this this seems like the politically expedient thing for both the ag uh -huh. and the da right uh -huh. it's yeah. like well the da needs a win because he's running for re-election uh and the ag well, he's to... praetor's not running for re-election oh yeah that's right he's not well i don't know then maybe my my theory is busted but yeah, except for the part the other half that the ag and the governor don't want to have their names attached to it uh speaking of uh speaking of healthcare, uh Oklahoma has a robust medical marijuana industry. Um <laughs> and uh the Legislative Office of Fiscal Transparency, also known as the Loft, uh they uh, uh, uh released a list of a report of some and some some policy considerations for uh the legislature to look at during a session this year, ways that they think well, things that they think are wrong with our medical marijuana industry um, and what they think, how they think it could look better. So a couple interesting facts. Um, they first start out by saying that, you know, uh, state question 788 created the most accessible marijuana industry in the country. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Um, they also said that because of how fast we went from passing the state question to implementation, four months, uh, most states. <laughs> was that yeah, all it was? Most Most states take two years. Uh, Oklahoma did it in four months. They said that the regulatory the regulatory framework was uh, was just grossly inadequate. Um, Andy, how many dispensaries do you think there are in Oklahoma per one hundred thousand people? 
Well, I have the number in front of me, but I would guess without, if I didn't, if I hadn't seen your notes for the episode, if I was just going to guess based on my neighborhood, let's see, uh, let's actually do the math here mentally. Um, Oklahoma City has roughly a million people, right, in the metro area. And in, I can think of, there's like five dispensaries within maybe more than five, maybe there's 10 within a mile of my house. Um, and so me, I, I would say there's probably, I don't know uh, if there's a, if there was a hundred for every hundred thousand people, that would mean there's 10,000 in the city. That seems too high. I don't know. I, I'll guess 50. 50 dispensaries for every 100,000 people. There's 56. <laughs> Damn, 50, I was close. <laughs> there are 56 dispensaries per 100,000 in population in Oklahoma. Now, uh, do you know what does not have 56 locations per 100,000 people in Oklahoma? That uh, is more than that's more than Sonic, Brahms, Starbucks, Walmart, and McDonald's combined 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 i was gonna guess independently sure no that's combined uh, you take all the sonics all the brahms all the starbucks all the walmarts and all the mcdonald's put all of them together and there are still more dispensaries per 100,000 than there are locations of those massive chains i i will you know i might uh do the math. I might go Google this. It feels like there are roughly as many dispensaries as there are gas stations. Maybe even more. No, I, I would say uh, like, and because it's close. Don't you think like on, I bet it's know, close. on most intersections has a gas station, and most intersections have a dispensary, um, and then there are some intersections with gas stations and no dispensaries, and then there's dispensaries in the middle of the street, lots of places. I, I I would guess it's close. So, so how, many, how many is that total? Then how many dispensaries? Oh, I don't know the I don't know the number, but if it's fifty six per one hundred k, then that's going to be five hundred and sixty per million, right? Uh, and then there's four million people, so five hundred sixty times uh, four. So, what is that? Five hundred sixty times four, two thousand, something like that. That's it. I, mean, I guess that's a lot, but so <laughs> it's quite a bit. There's only 77 counties. <laughs> that's true. So that's yeah. Um, there's a you know there's a, a list of all of these on the OMA website, but it doesn't it doesn't give you a a number. It's just like a PDF, of course, and it's 163 pages long. But the 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 loft is recommending four policy changes that they think that the legislature should consider. They say first that there should be a, and that the legislature should establish an agency advisory committee uh, or something similar that leads to defining the roles and responsibilities of agencies involved in the medical marijuana industry. 
establish a legislative oversight body responsible for reviewing and approving strategic plans for uh, performance indicators and for receiving feedback. I don't know what any of that means. Uh, require an independent operational assessment related to transitioning OMA to a standalone agency or an independent commission. So they said that the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority should be its own thing, that not, not sit inside any other state agency. And also, here's a big one, institute a moratorium on issuing licenses until a fully developed regulatory framework is in place and implemented and the industry is brought into compliance. That's individual licenses, not just business ones, right? Yeah, correct. No, and, and so so uh, how do you think this is going to go over with the folks that uh, passed 788 if the legislature undertook any of those things? Well, I, so I don't know. I think, you know, the general public won't like that except almost everyone already has a license. So like, it may be that like everyone who would complain about this already has their license and thus wouldn't, wouldn't care. I, I don't, I should say, I don't know that if this is business licenses only, or if it is all licenses, I think it might be business licenses only. Well, so I read something that, that it would, they were going to stop issuing like patient, uh, cards patient licenses i i can understand a moratorium on business licenses i think i can't imagine they would try to stop patient licenses just from a logistics standpoint however there are three or four ballot initiatives right now to create a recreational marijuana which would render all this stuff more or less moot right Right. I just think it is I just think it is interesting. I'm I'm curious to see if the legislature is going to take this up um any of these because the legislature right now is chock full of people who are not a fan of big government and bureaucracy and creating more government agencies and more government spending and more government is bad government. Well, these are four recommendations which would entail a pretty uh, significant expansion of government as it relates to this new industry. Um, and so I'm just curious to see where this goes. I'd like to see if uh, some of the more outspoken members of the legislature put their money where their mouth is in terms of not uh, overregulating uh, businesses. And to be clear, I don't, you know, I don't use marijuana. I don't have a medical marijuana license. I don't write medical marijuana licenses and I don't. I, I I have no skin in this game whatsoever. You know, I think there's problems with the way that we did it, but you know, I, I, I you know, that's that's neither here nor that's neither here nor there. I don't I don't have a personal interest in the outcome of this. I am purely looking at this at this from the outside, looking in to see. Okay, well, you're you're all for deregulating all these other industries. What about this one? Right. Well, and some of the verbiage, the vernacular used by members of the legislature talking about this has been interesting for that very reason. I was like, how are they going to message around this? And they've said uh, basically like, uh, what was the phrase? If we, if we, without proper regulations, we have like an unfettered or uninhibited black market and that compromises the free market. And I was like, so then I was like, well, isn't the black market perhaps a pure version free of the market. free market, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> but, and so in doing so, I think your point, right? Like they are demonstrating the value of proper government regulation of right. an industry to protect consumers, right? Um, and to help uh, ensure a more or less equal playing field, which is not the case. Scott, I did the math. And the Googling, there are approximately 1,800 
gas stations in the state and approximately 20, 2,400 dispensaries. So we have more dispensaries than gas stations. I love it. <laughs> so we might even have more dispensaries than gas stations and oil wells combined. I don't know how many oh, active Lord. wells we have right now, but anyway, uh, there we go. Um, last story this week on kind of our news roundup, and we won't spend very much time here. Um, it's quite the story. You should you can read it on Nondoc. Um, man, if you, if you call somebody, leave a message, and after you after you hang up, you're going to plan to like disparage people or make incriminating remarks or. I don't know, talk about the deadliest pandemic in recent human history as though it's a boon for your business. You should really make sure that you hang up first. Uh, Oklahoma County Jail Administrator Greg Williams and his Director of Communications, Mark, how do you say, is it is it, is it Upgrand? Upgrande? I don't know how you say his last it's name. Upgrand, yeah. Upgrand. Uh, they uh, inadvertently recorded a voicemail uh, of of the two of them talking about the COVID pandemic. The short version is that there is a reporter from a French reporter, I believe, who had contacted them wanting to do a story on the jail. Uh, they declined. Uh, and when filmmaker, right? And yeah, documentary. They 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 declined and they they hung up and inadvertently left a voicemail, which was provided anonymously to Nondoc. And um, they just talk about the the, the big thing is they go on for quite a while about how COVID is our friend, how COVID is the best thing that could have happened to the county jail because it gives them an excuse not to let visitors in because it got them $10 million to re redo the HVAC and how it's going to get even more money from the CARES Act and more money from ARP, uh, from the American Rescue Plan, um, and just how COVID has been such a boon for the county jail and how they've only had three people die uh, and just really kind of making light of the whole situation. They go back and forth with the uh, COVID is our friend mantra for quite a while, even going as so far as to say they should put that in, in uh, their report to the board of the, the jail trustees as part of their, as part of their report. Um, you know, as someone who's had a lot of, um, you know, I, I have had, you know, dozens at this point of my patients die from COVID. Andy, you lost your mom. Um, you know, <clears throat> we've been dealing with this in, in our face for two years and, you know, they've issued an apology since then and that's fine. Um, but man, it's really infuriating to hear people speak like this. Um, you did, know, you, did you listen to the, the recording? I, I, I did not listen to it in its entirety. I listened to the first, the first several minutes of it. Yeah. Um, it's only like five minutes long. It was interesting. I, you know, like, I'll be honest uh, with you. And I, well, two things I'll be honest about. One, this is the kind of conversation that I miss having in person doing the podcast because sure, us because even though you and I are very good friends and we talk frequently, there's there's a wall there of communicating yeah. through the computer. Uh, so I'll try to be as you know empathic as I can here. I think I get where they're coming from in saying this. They weren't they weren't being callous necessarily. They weren't being like dicks about it like they were they were recognizing that i think if you distill it and if you are generous in your distillation of what they're trying to say they're trying to say man the G oklahoma county jail is in terrible shape it needs a huge influx of money well it needs to be torn down and built anew right but they need money to like make some things better and because of the federal funding for covid 
it has been that. I would argue that COVID has been a boon for a great number of businesses and industries, right? Like there are, now there are a ton that have closed and haven't survived, but when you think about uh, everything from Zoom to Google and Netflix and all these companies, right? This pandemic has resulted in uh, an influx of revenue and in some cases needed, right? Because it allowed them to to purchase supplies and, and make repairs that they needed to make that they wouldn't have had the money for otherwise. Now, you don't effing say that with a hot mic around, right? Like <laughs> this is the, and I feel like we've had a lot of hot mic issues lately, including the president, right? Like a lot of people have just been saying stuff with mics around or voicemails or whatever. And so I think, you know, the way that they said it, I wouldn't, I would not say COVID is my friend, is our friend. That's not the case, right? They're trying to say, you know, this is a terrible scenario that has happened to have resulted in our facility receiving some much needed uh, funding, right? Now, but that's not how they said it. And I, some of the other bits of that conversation, uh, you know, I think indicate the types of news sources that they're probably getting their information from. And I was just like, okay, well, these, I don't think their top concern, right, has been running the jail effectively and efficiently and safely and for the benefit or, you know, for the protection of those who are incarcerated there. Um, but yeah, it was a really, when I read the headline, I was like, oh my gosh. And then listening to it, I was like, okay, it, it lacked th- like, um, and the bite. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like yeah. the bite that I expected it to have, which was somewhat relieving at the time. Now I'm still like disheartened as a human <laughs> about this. Right. right. I mean, I see, I see, I see where you're coming from. And I think that you are probably right. I think that's probably an accurate. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, maybe I need to give a little bit more grace because certainly all of us have, all of us have, I'm sure, you know, times where we use dark humor or, you know, we make, we make light of situations. I guess I think there's a difference between dark humor and, and making light of a situation as a coping mechanism. Right. Like, like, like I think that's one thing. (laughs) Right. But you know, and 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 to be, you're correct. It's not like their tone was like, "Man, COVID's the best thing that ever happened to us." You know, I mean, they weren't like, yeah. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that. But I don't know. I, you know, I it probably pissed me off more than it should have. Um, but it, no, it was not okay. I mean, it was, it was, and maybe at this point, like I. I'm like running out of anger in some ways and just sure. disappointment, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like uh, where I'm like, golly guys, like get it together. If you're going to say these things, don't, don't say in a way that the public can hear you. Cause it's not helping our sense of demoralization in this community. The jail is in terrible shape, like physically the management of the jail and everything to do with it for the last several years has been a, a train wreck. Right. And, uh, from Commissioner Calvi and the trust and the so many deaths at the jail. Sure, they've only had three that were attributed to COVID, but like they've had almost one death a month, which is a lot of death. 
for, uh-huh. for jail. And that yeah. rate has been like for the last several years. I was talking to a colleague in San Diego who had heard about how bad our jail was and was like, I read an article about how bad the Oklahoma County jail is. Is that is it really big? Like, what's the deal? And I was like, it's just that bad. <laughs> yeah. I was like, okay, I don't even know why, you know, like it's making national news again, but we got to do something about it. And and this is not helping things. All right. Moving on real real quick. We've got our, our legislative our legislative roundup. Some a couple of there's five bills I put on here for, for this week. We'll start. We'll kind of we'll we'll work our way up. So first we've got House Bill 3902. This is my representative Kennedy, Chris Kennedy. Um that passed out of House Veterans and Military Affairs Committee. Um this has to deal with the Oklahoma National Guard. Um, and it's a lot of like cleanup language that's just kind of clar- you know, clarifying some things in the statute language that needs to be just fixed or could be made better from a from a legal standpoint. Um, but there's two parts of this. So it changes the oath um, that members take when they join the Oklahoma National Guard. Instead of I will obey orders of the president of the United States, I'm paraphrasing. Instead of saying I will obey orders from the president of the United States, it says I will obey lawful orders from the president of the United States. And this is interesting because I think it begs the question, who determines what a lawful order is? If you are a soldier, can you just decide, no, I'm not going to obey an order to, I don't know, get vaccinated because I, as an individual, have determined that that's not a lawful order. I mean, my understanding, I have not served in uniform, so maybe I'm wrong. I don't think the individual soldier gets to determine what a lawful order is. Right, like that's what's the opposite of how the military works. <laughs> right, right. Like there's like 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 superior officers maybe do that. Right, um, courts do that. You know, this seems to be. You know, I, I would I would guess that this is something that the governor had a hand uh, in in putting in the bill, um, and and it seems like the governor. You know, if that's the case, yet again. Uh, or, or the legislature thinking that the legislature gets to determine what lawful orders are, or the governor gets to determine like what is lawful. The legislature doesn't get to determine what is lawful. They make laws, but the courts determine what is lawful, right? The governor can, and the governor gets to enforce the laws that the legislature makes that the courts determine are lawful, but courts determine what is lawful, not legislators, not the governor. Um, and I don't think individual service members. So that was interesting. The other thing that the bill does is it lets the governor waive uh, a number of uh, statutorily required um, uh, statutory requirements for who can be the adjutant general of the National Guard, um, which seems to me not great. <laughs> Those requirements are there like for a reason. <laughs> the governor, the current governor, who is one only one governor we've had, is coming in and just wanting to change the requirements for all these positions, right? So that he can put in the person he wants to put in there. And I feel as another person in this state, right? <laughs> that maybe we should establish uh, qualifying criteria for the position and then find someone to meet that, right? Like make, make the person meet the criteria. Don't make the criteria meet match the person. Again, is that, is is that how the governor runs his business? Does he like pick who he wants and then decide if they're a good fit for the job or decide what the job needs and then find the person? Uh, you know, I mean, it's his business. He can do whatever he wants, but his business is not the state of Oklahoma. It's not his business. Um, yeah. At, at the, the mortgage company. Fine. Right. But like, right, exactly. This is for the state. This who runs our state's national guard seems like something we should all care about. And we might want to have a really qualified person. 
Uh, House Bill 2973. This is Representative Olson. This, uh, mm, we'd gotten to talking and my headache went away and now it's back. Uh, this is a bill that would explicitly allow conversion therapy uh, for uh, LGBTQ um, teenagers. Um, it would allow their parents to consent to conversion therapy um, and, and, and allow them to undergo con- conversion therapy, which one is not therapy, two is not helpful, three can lead to suicide. Um, it's really, really terrible. A couple of years ago, we were really close to actually getting a conversion therapy ban in Oklahoma, um, and it didn't get over the hump. <clears throat> I don't know if that's going to get resurrected anytime soon, uh, but it certainly seems like with House Bill 2973, we're going in the opposite direction. So uh, this was, I don't remember what committee this was assigned to, but hopefully it goes away. Um, House Bill 3621, some good news. from, from I think it's good news. This is by Representative Virgin. Uh, passed out of committee this week. This is the no more taxes on groceries bill. Um, you know, there's been some no discussion state, about this. State income state taxes. taxes. No, state no more taxes. state state sales taxes on groceries. Um, Representative Virgin has been very careful to say that this will not affect municipality budgets um, because of the way that it's written. Because cities like Oklahoma City and Tulsa, you know, Lawton, you know, the bigger cities in the state depend so heavily on sales taxes uh, to fund their operations. Um, Every city. That's how they're funded is sales taxes. Yes. I mean, yes, that's true. But I think the big met the, the, the big areas, this would hit particularly hard. Sure. Yeah. Um, um, uh, but that passed, I think unanimously out of committee. So good news there for representative Virgin and moving over add, to like, yes. as just a, so listeners know it would effectively lower the price of groceries about 4%, right? It's like a 4% state sales tax uh, on, on groceries. I think it's like four and a quarter percent. Which man, uh, groceries cost a lot right now. <laughs> that's that's a welcome change, I think, for everybody. Amen to that. And then, lastly, uh, two moving over to the Senate, Senate Joint Resolution uh, Thirty. This is by Senator Hamilton. <sighs> this is a bill that would change the process for state questions and essentially give rural counties veto power. Uh, over state questions by requiring that what 52 of Oklahoma's 77 counties uh, would have to approve a state question uh, for it to take effect um, rather than simply a majority vote. This makes no sense and I'm pretty sure is illegal. I think it would violate the um, equal protection clause or equal representation. Um, the, The standard of one person, one vote because who cares how many counties there are? right? It's about people. If we had, and truth be told, I, I looked up the data about this, Scott, the 52 least populous counties, right? If you went bottom up, the total population uh, as of the census is about 780,000, right? Which is basically you take two thirds of the counties in Oklahoma and they they add up to the population of uh, of Oklahoma County. And so, again, it's about voters. It's about people, not about counties. Some states have tons of counties. Some states have very few counties. I don't understand. I know what he's trying to do with this, and it's not remotely okay. Uh, Agree. It's been assigned to Senate rules. Hopefully it stays there. Uh, And then finally, this is interesting. Senate Bill 1647. This is Senator Treat's bill. 
Uh, this is his massive education reform bill that would basically say that parents can decide where their kids go to school and that school gets the funding for that child, essentially, is what it does. Uh, the governor made a point of shouting out this bill uh, as a priority of his in his state of the state, uh, Senator Treat, the Senate pro tem. He wrote the bill, so clearly he's expecting it to move forward. House Speaker Charles McCall has come out and said, yeah, uh, I got, I got a pun. The house has no appetite for a treat. <laughs> that was good. You like that? You that see, you, you see what I did there? Uh, he said the the house has no the house has no appetite or plans uh, to hear this bill. He said this is not something that's a priority for our members. It's never come up on our come up in our caucus meetings. What it's really about um, is that there are a huge number of rural public school superintendents. Uh, who feel like this is a bill that will devastate their districts. And I think that the the uh, the House side and, and the Speaker in particular is hearing from those folks about how bad this would be. Now, my question to you, Andy, does Speaker McCall really have no intention of hearing this bill? Or is this posturing for him to get something that he wants from the Senator later in the session? That was going to be my question for you, Scott. I Because this happened last year right the uh there was the uh oklahoma whatever it was another voucher bill the tax credit or tax Equal opportunity credit, yeah. tax credit right yeah right right it was like a backwards voucher um the and he was like i'm not gonna hear it. we're not gonna have it and then and they did I, at this point early in session everything is on the table right they will tell you stuff is not on the table until they sign you die it's on the table uh and those of us who have um, been following the legislature for a few years, know this all too well, right? Stuff will sneak up on deadline week at late at night. They will pass legislation that is terrible for Oklahoma uh, that the majority doesn't want. I, I have been disheartened about this in lots of ways. Uh, one, the messaging around it makes sense. So, you know, um, if, so to, to people who don't pay close attention to this, who don't spend their evenings reading legislation the way that you and I do um, having someone say, well, this lets parents choose where their kids go to school and they can basically you get, you get a coupon for some money and you can, you know, use it to pay for your kid to go to wherever you want, whether that's the public school near you, maybe it's a private school you want to send them to where they get a religious education. Maybe they're homeschooled and you're going to pay for a private tutor to supplement your homeschooling, whatever it is. Uh, that's how they're doing it. And that does sound nice, right? Like people like choice. That sounds nice. Except that is the antithesis of what public education is all about. And the reason that we have public education in our state's constitution, as does almost, I think, every other state in the country, is because we are stronger together, right? Like pooling our resources and working together to educate our society doesn't only create smarter kids, right? And and uh, uh, build the bench of our workforce, right? It It is something that ties our community together in important ways. Schools are pillars of community. They are resources. They are um, community centers where groups have meetings from Boy Scouts, you know, to wherever else. I grew up where we always voted at schools. For whatever reason, we voted churches in Oklahoma, but it was always polling places when I was a kid. Uh, but there's a lot of activities that happen at schools that would not be able to happen if this bill passes because it will 
fundamentally uh, reduce funding for public education and cut the legs out from underneath our schools. Our teachers are already struggling, right? It's gonna it's gonna result in teachers losing their jobs. It's gonna result in coaches losing their jobs. Uh, and if someone, in my opinion, if someone wants their kid to go to a private school or to go be homeschooled, fine. You still have that choice, right? And that choice might come with a price tag. And just, you know, like if if you get a voucher for $6,000 so that you can go to private school, what's the private school going to do? Raise tuition by $6,000, right? Like that's how, that's how this works. So all that agree with agree with above. Fantastic. Love it. But uh, I want you to take off your like civics minded hat here for a minute. And I want you to put on your uh, partisan political mercenary hat for a second. <laughs> and and let's let's assume let's assume that this is bluster from the speaker mm, yeah. uh, and he's uh, trying to get some leverage. What does he want? What is the house pushing this year that he needs leverage to get through the Senate? Are they they're pushing anti-vaccine mandate stuff, right? That's that's my concern. That's my suspicion. You know, Senator McCourtney, Senator McCourtney, I mean Senator McCourtney is now the floor leader on the Senate and uh previously he was chair of uh the health whatever the formal title is of the health committee over in the senate uh and as and as chair of that committee the senator did not have much appetite for you know the anti-vaccine bills and all that sort of stuff i think that he'll probably still not have much appetite for that as the floor leader unless uh unless hearing those sorts of bills is what it's going to take to get senator treats education bill over the line because mccall is going to be getting the pressure from the governor's office and from the Senate on this education bill. So to me, if he is taking this stand this early, it's either because it is either because the pushback behind closed doors from rural school districts is overwhelming and he just sees that he can't let it go forward or it's because he'll take that pressure, he'll take the heat from the rural districts and he'll let it move but he's going to want something in return. Hmm. And so what does he, what does he want? And, you know, I, to me, it would be on the one hand, like you're going to play that chip to, to pass anti-vaccine legislation. But that was the first thing that I thought of as well. Yeah. It's so disheartening, which is, I guess the word that I've used like six times in this episode, but to, to see them, you know, all this horse trading over bills that are, that are each bad for Oklahoma, right? Like they, they, they're trying to be like, no, I want to hose them the way that I want to hose them. I don't want to hose them the way you want to hose them. And it's like, okay, health and education are two big issues that affect everybody. I guess the alternative would be, you know, I think we both, I guess this is a third possibility. I think we both believe that Senator Treat has a grander political design designs uh, for when his time in the state legislature is over. Um, is it enough for him to say that he introduced this bill and pushed for it without having to actually get it over the line? Like, is this actually like is this actually a messaging bill for Senator Treat that he already knows isn't going to go anywhere? He and McCall have agreed to fight about it publicly, but behind closed doors, they both know it's going to kill the rural district, so they're not going to let it happen. But they have to let Treat fight for it. Right, right. There is that like signaling, especially in a election year 
and that's this is the part of stuff that I think the public hates about politics, right? Is that people will run bills, even fight for them, and put out press releases like Treat's press release, um, where he's like, I will fight tirelessly for this just so he can say it because why he's raising money for well is treat up no he treats not up for re-election now he's solid this is his last term he's got two more years left but he's not running for re-election right now he doesn't need it he doesn't need it this year but he needs it for when he runs for whatever right he is doing two things he's undoubtedly raising money for whatever he does next right for congress or the u.s senate or whatever um, and I think as pro Tim, he has an obligation or responsibility or something, right, to raise money for some of his colleagues to, to, to you know, support the party. Uh, and so he has to do that and has to has to say things. Because by saying that, it either gets them a few more bucks, it um, helps tamp down members of his party who might be angry, right? The state party is... Uh, strongly going against rhinos i get i get the emails from the OKGOP, okay and john bennett is always like i my pledge to you is that i will root out these so-called republicans you know and it's just uh he's got to get he treats getting it from both sides and he's trying to he's good at playing the game like he knows what to play it well, well, uh, it's 50, 58 minutes. Shall we talk about the state of the state? We should. I, you know, Scott, I think it's funny that we, uh, you know, last week we we're like, next week, state of the state, we'll have it all broken down. And now we are a week later. The state of the state seems like it was a month ago. It does. And, it and does. While there was a lot of attention given to it on Monday, just four days later, it doesn't matter anymore, right? And right. This, and it's honestly, it, it was what we thought it was, right? It was a lot of... It was a lot of Oklahoma is open for business. It was a lot of McGirt is killing Oklahoma. Um, it was a lot of let's cut taxes. Um, it was, you know, talking about this education bill. I mean, it's 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 everything that we thought it was going to be, including including the fact that in his entire 40-something minute speech, whatever it was, no mention of the almost 15,000 Oklahomans who have died of COVID. None. Yeah. Zero. Yeah. Not an ounce of not an ounce of sympathy, not an ounce of condolence, not an ounce of empathy. Like COVID Which never is, happened. And that's how he's been playing it for the last several months, right? They oh, for a, had, I mean almost a year. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll be a year in March since yeah. he's had any kind of formal remarks on the pandemic. Yeah. Um it I will I will say, you know, Governor Stitt is a better public speaker than his predecessor, uh, Mary Fallon was. And so he is, I think, better at delivering speeches. Um, it struck me as a campaign speech, right? This wasn't, this had much less to do with the current state of the state and much more to do with the current state of Stitt, if that makes sense. Um, I think, I think, um, you know, listeners, if you missed the speech, or I guess I don't know if you missed it, but if you didn't hear it or you're interested in listening to it or reading it, uh, I would direct you to Oklahoma Watch, who did what they've done in years past, and they took the transcript of it and then annotated it with some of their own fact checks and comments. Um, Scott, it was funny that uh, a one of the special guests who was seated at the right hand of First Lady Sarah Stitt was uh, Tony Akia. Aquila? Maybe it's Tony Aquila. There's only one L. Anyway, he's the CEO of Canoe, the car company, which has not made any cars. 
<laughs> and I, I think I texted you during this, like you're at work, but I was like, I can't believe the CEO of canoe is here. He either. I don't know who's trying to like help the other person out more, but it just was funny to me that he came to the state of the state at the governor's request, right. For this one mention about it. And I, like, why bring attention to this one issue in your state of the state when you don't actually have anything to show for it, right? Like, that seemed like a, a, a miscalculation by the state. Because people don't know he has nothing to show for it, right? Because the people who know he has nothing to show for it are the people that follow this obsessively, like you and I do, right? And the people that read The Frontier and the people who read Oklahoma Watch and the people that are really, really engaged, which, you know, those those outlets have, like, good, large followings but nobody's talking about canoe on kfor at six o'clock or 10 p.m right no, not, like they, they reported on the initial press release about about it coming but no right. follow-up to the fact that like diddly squat has actually happened right you know i don't i don't know that the oklahoma or the tulsa world i think the tulsa world has actually has done some reporting on it um but like the the outlets that are reporting on what appears to be i think it may be too early to call it a fiasco but certainly uh, an over-promising and under-delivering situation in terms of business development in Oklahoma, the outlets that have that are the nonprofit investigative outlets that are, that are hustling every day. Right. Um, that, you know, if you're on Twitter in Oklahoma, then you know what's going to happen with canoe, but most people aren't, they got jobs, they got families. They don't, they don't sit awake in bed at five in the morning scrolling right. through Twitter like you and I do. Well, you know, what's funny about that. Um, the episode of the 538 politics podcast that came out yesterday, I think, um, is about this very thing. I started listening to it today, and it's about a uh, survey from Stony Brook University, um, and they have those people on the show. Um, and based on their data, they estimate that only 15 to 20 percent of Americans actually are are politically engaged, like pay attention to this stuff, and that. 80 to 85 percent don't and they were i think their their postulate here is that there's a lot of attention given to the right versus left you know red versus blue partisan polarization in our country but something we're not talking enough about is that there are the politically active and the non-politically active and that that dividing line is even more important because when you break it down that means that if you've only got you know 15 20 percent of people paying attention and then it's only those, that small group that is so divided, right? The rest of the country couldn't give two shits about some of this stuff, but we are all paying the price. And that's, I mean, I, that's an argument that we make all the time about decisions are made by those who show up, that the more of us that pay attention, you don't have to like devolve into these, you know, stupid partisan pissing matches about stuff. You can, you can care about issues, care about public education or, you know, your state's public health response to a pandemic, uh, those, where our tax dollars are going, how they're being spent or misspent. Um, that's not partisan, right? Like that's, that's being a good steward of the world around you. So anyway, I, I, Scott, I feel like I've been on a soapbox this whole episode. There's been several times I've seen you just lean back and let me, let me rail about something. I'm just, I'm just taking it in. Can I, uh, before we wrap up, there was a, a couple of things I wanted to highlight from the state of the state that yeah. I haven't heard other outlets talk about. Um, one was his talking point that he says, we have 2,000 fewer state employees than just a few years ago. 
and he was touting that as uh, a good thing. delivering taxpayers more for their money um that being responsive to citizens not by growing government and so he says we've cut state government by two thousand people i want to be and my my initial response in hearing that was like well um uh, a decent number of them died from covid right which is like yeah when you think about who, state employees in uh-huh. healthcare, mental health dhs um state funded nursing homes those kinds of things police emsa fire yeah like that's uh disappointing like that's uh difficult uh inconvenient truth but also um our state is struggling right people are leaving state government because they are underpaid and 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 uh underappreciated and just a month ago he was calling on state employees to take on a second job of being teachers right um, which interestingly he did not talk about in the speech i kind of expected him to highlight having a state employee there who stepped up that was not there um it's because they couldn't pass the background check well yeah they're probably still still waiting the other thing that some of his lines were funny where he says there are no rubber stamps and blank checks on my watch and that was ironic i think in retrospect um given the given the, the health department on it <laughs> yeah like two days later i was like whoop whoopsie but he's says he says uh there are no rubber stamps and blank checks on my watch that's why we're launching a new budgeting process for our agencies. It's called Transparent Oklahoma Performance. You can track our progress at top.ok.gov. I will keep shining a light to protect taxpayers and hold our government accountable. It's like, well, your government bought five and a half million dollars worth of stuff that they never received two years ago, right? It's been two years. You haven't even talked about it. You should have just been honest. Secondly, didn't you already launch the Oklahoma checkbook like two years ago mm-hmm. or three years ago? What, are we, what is this now? Um, I'm, this is like the people who publish the national debt every day and say it's like holding government accountable by saying, here's how much money we spent in the last 24 hours. Like, what does so it actually do anything? It's a way of, of sounding right like of, of sounding like you're doing something without actually doing doing anything really what he's done with the budgeting process is instead of allowing agencies to actually request what they need they have to tell him how much they want and he gets to decide whether the number is too big or not right yeah. like that's that's what he's done with the budget process right and then lastly i, I was interested that he really is calling for some bold uh, investments in infrastructure and transportation infrastructure 13 billion dollars over the next 10 years which i thought was I was like, didn't we just? That's, uh, Joe, that's, that's Joe Biden's money. It's true. Yeah. I was like, that's federal <laughs> funds that's doing a lot of this. And also, um, like, infrastructure is just a perennial, like, uh, a positive topic for politicians to be like, hey, we're uh, we're shovel ready here. We're going to build you some roads and bridges. So it's, all, it's always roads and bridges. Vote for me. Vote for bridges. <laughs> so that was funny. Uh, yeah. Some of it's just. <laughs> just bananas the whole budget process is bananas he's a piece of work man he's a piece of work yeah all right well i think that's that brings us to the end of this episode anything scott that we missed no man we got 68 minutes of rock solid content right here so thanks thanks for thanks for listening everybody by the time that listeners get this it'll be slightly less because i'll I'll cut out where i had to go let my dogs outside And I'll probably uh, try to cut out wherever we talked over each other <laughs> in there. We, we tried to do that a little bit less today. It's, uh, yeah, well, it was good. Uh, Scott, thanks for being here. Hey, man, thank you. 
Listeners, thank you for being here as well. Um, We will continue this conversation next week uh, and keep you up to date. Uh, I will give you an update from Let's Fix This very quickly that we, I've I've got all of our bill lists like 99% done. Um, I have just another page here. You can, you can hear the piece of paper in my hands. I need to add to it and I'll get those posted on our website. I'm sure soon we're, we're trying to, you know, track them as we did last year by subject matter. So constitutional amendments, initiative petitions, voting in elections, those kinds of issues, things that you all care about. Um, you will also, if you follow us, you will be receiving an email soon with our new um, kind of email platform, which will allow you to subscribe to specific topics. And that's very exciting. Um, Is it MailChimp? It's no. not MailChimp. No, we've been using MailChimp. And then we switched to Squarespace, which was a, a letdown. And now we're using every action, which has a lot more functionality. Uh, listeners, if you uh, enjoy Let's Pod This, if you listen to us every week, I ask you, I'm asking you to do two things. One, um, share it with a friend, someone who isn't perhaps politically involved, but might be interested in staying up to date on these things. And if, for whatever reason, if Scott and I uh, explain it well for you or keep you entertained and informed, please share it with a friend. Secondly, the other thing we need, uh, honestly, is money. Um, Let's Fix This is moving towards hiring its first staff person, people this year. We would like to get an office so that we can provide a a broader range of civic engagement resources for the public. Uh, And we're this is a very exciting time. Uh, I know many of you already donate to us or have donated in the past, and it's so appreciated. Um, We're a 501c3. Your donations are tax deductible please go to our website, letsfixthis.org and click that big yellow donate button up in the top right corner. We'd be very appreciative. This is a, this is a big deal and be hugely helpful. You know, if everyone, if everyone that listens to this show every week, if you guys get $5 a month for the awesome content that you get here, and by the way, none of this is going to go to like, you know, our pockets, <laughs> right? This is not so like, this is not so we can buy a new microphone for Let's Pod This. This is to support the work that Let's Fix This is doing. But if everybody who listened to the show gave five five bucks a month, that would be literally huge, like literally game changing um, for, for, for Let's Fix This. So if you think about it, if you got a spare five bucks, if you like what you hear here, or honestly, even if you don't, uh, if you, if you hate listen every month, if you want to keep hate listening, um, please, please send the $5. <laughs> exactly right all right on that note don't forget that decisions are made by those who show up have a good weekend